Luke chapter number 9, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 57. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Luke chapter number 9, verse number 57. The Word of God says, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to get to be here. I pray that you'd take your holy and errant inspired preserved word and use it in the hearts and lives of your people tonight, Lord. We know that it's your sword that the Spirit wields, Lord, and, and, and it's your book that you're using in our hearts and minds so we can trust you as the author, knowing the thoughts and intents of our hearts to rightly apply the truth of your word. Help us to have the mind of Christ as we read it and as we listen to the preaching of it tonight. Lord, may we not be lifted up in pride. May we not view it through the prism of, of it being someone else's sermon, someone else's word, someone else's message. But Lord, as a message given directly to us tonight, Lord, knowing that we're providentially here to hear from you. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I think one of the reasons that I love Luke chapter number nine is because it deals so succinctly with the topic of discipleship. We hear that word discipleship a lot nowadays. You know, uh, every church, every ministry has programs and systems and classes and all sorts of things to develop discipleship in people. And while those things may have benefit, they may have merit, and I think there's probably a place for them, I think in many ways they miss what is the fundamental core concept of discipleship in the life of the believer. One of the things that, that bothers me about that sort of... Um, Culture is it, it, it almost paints discipleship as being the superlative step of the super Christian. Uh, there's a lot of things I think that people do that with when it comes to the Christian walk as though, you know, a regular Christian just sort of lives any old way that he wants. But if a man wants to be a disciple of Christ, he has somehow taken a step into a deeper and greater commitment. The reality is this. We're all called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. The moment you got born again, you signed up for it. That's that is the, the normal condition of the Christian experience is to be that of discipleship. But if we're to understand it correctly, I think we have to boil it down and see it for what it really is. When you think about the idea of discipleship and you break down the word to be a disciple of someone, uh, you have sort of three words that are floating around there. One, of course, is the word of discipleship, the concept of what it means to be a disciple. And then there is the, the, the descriptive word itself, a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? And then even floating within that is another word that's not exactly the same, but it's very familiar and very connected to it, and it's the word discipline. When I think of the word discipline, there's basically two ways that we could think of that word. One is the idea of a rigidness in the way that we live. We uh, lack, or I do, you probably don't, I lack discipline about certain things. Um, you know, it, it's uh, every year it's New Year's time, so it's time for us all to renew our gym memberships. Amen. And uh, and then pretend like we're going to go. And uh, but the reality is most of us like the discipline to do that. We, we lack the ability to, let's say it this way, master our own will to produce that. 
And you see, really, when we speak about the concept of discipline, I think we're getting to the heart of it. That's what it is. It's the mastering of a person's will. When a person is a disciple of Jesus Christ, what it means is not that they mastered their own will, but rather that he, the master, has mastered their own will. When we also think of the word discipline, we often speak of it in terms of a pursuit of a certain set of ideals. For instance, we talk about certain vocations or hobbies as disciplines, the discipline of martial arts or, uh, you know, the, the discipline of uh, whatever it might be, writing or, uh, you know, painting or whatever hobby or whatever activity or action it might be. And we're speaking of a commitment to a certain action or endeavor. We could maybe summarize it by saying this. Discipleship is a commitment. And it is a commitment to three things. One, it is a commitment to the master's will. It is allowing him to hold discipline over us. In other words, any man that says, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you've not subjugated yourself to the will of God, you're not living and behaving as a disciple. All the disciples in the New Testament, when we speak of the term apostle, that's a very distinct term. Uh, the Bible teaches there were 12 apostles, and of course, uh, Judas gave up his office, and uh, they voted Matthias to replace him. I sort of still, my pastor always said they should have picked Paul, and I agree with it, amen. I don't know anything Matthias ever did except show up and get voted on. But uh, the disciples was a broader term, and it encompassed all those uh, that followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. And what was a person, uh, when, when they were a disciple, what was the common thing they would call the Lord? They would call him either Lord or Master, both of them meaning very similar things. The idea being, you have the right of way, the jurisdiction over my decisions in my life. The relationship between Lord and disciple is very similar to the relationship between Master and servant. And it was a way of saying, I am committed to your will above my will. Let me tell you, if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have to decide here and now that his will is more important than our will. What he wants out of our life is more important than what we want out of our life, uh, that we are committed to his will. But then we would say this, that a disciple of someone can also be spoken of in terms of someone that's an advocate of the teachings or ideals. So we could say this, it's a commitment to the master's will, but it's a commitment to the master's words, to his teachings, to the things that he communicates to his followers. Now, this was very uh, common in the days of, of the uh, earthly ministry of Christ in, in terms of how the disciples would have viewed themselves as being adherents to his truth, adherents to his teaching. And let me say, uh, until this book becomes the guidebook of our life, we can't really call ourselves a fit disciple of Jesus Christ. We have God is more important than my word or your I'm a disciple of Christ, but I don't care what the Bible says about this, that, or the other. Now, the sad truth is there's a great many folks that, that do that very thing today uh, that have cultural Christianity, and they say, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you'll say, well, what about this that the Word of God says? And I'll say, well, I'm not so sure about that. And really, I just, you know, I just do my own thing. I live my own way. Sometimes they'll blame it on the Holy Ghost. That drives me up the wall. They'll say, well, I, and I've heard people say this. Well, I, I don't follow the Bible as much as I follow the Spirit. Uh, listen, somebody says that you run as far as hard away from them as you possibly can because this book is the word of the Holy Ghost and uh, he will always be instructing you and keeping with it. So it's a commitment to the master's word. And then I would say this, it is a commitment to the master's work. A disciple was someone that was helping the Lord Jesus carry out his work during his earthly ministry. And I would say that for you and I, we cannot call ourselves a disciple of Christ if we're not committed to seeing the work of God done in our life 
and the lives of others. There's, there's no room for, for passiveness. There's no, there's no spectator seats in this thing of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now let me be abundantly clear. That doesn't mean we all serve in the same ways. It doesn't mean that we are all equipped for the same tasks. But it does mean that God doesn't save anyone and say, your job as a disciple is to be a supervisor. Just stand over there and watch everybody else work. He doesn't do that. The fact is, we are all committed. Uh, to engage in the work and in the cause and in the calling of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about discipleship and we come to Luke chapter 9, we find three men that are faced with the prospect of discipleship. And I'm, I'm always arrested by this passage because it, it really presents in a very poignant way three main things that derail discipleship in our lives. I think I could make a series of statements we'd probably all agree with very quickly that might frame the message. Would we all agree that we're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ? Would we all agree that there's a great many people that say they are disciples that are not? Would we all agree with that? I think we would probably all agree with this. There are many people that sincerely want to follow Jesus Christ, but somehow in their life they always seem to find something as an obstacle to them ever really jumping in and full bore committing their heart and life to Jesus Christ. The fact is... These three men here, it's easy to stand in judgment of them. It's easy to stand and say, oh, that'd never be me. But the truth is, it's been me at series in my life, different times. It's probably been you, and it may be where you or I sit tonight as we examine in truth the Word of God. You see, when I read these three men, there, there's a couple statements I'd make about it. far as I can tell, number one, all three of these men were spiritually minded people. You say, preacher, why do you, why do you believe that? Well, because they would not even be engaging in this conversation if they didn't value spiritual things. They're willing to entertain the thought of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, not because they are rank carnal infidels, but because they are spiritually minded. They love the things of God. They are interested in the things of God. I'd say we're not going to be a disciple until we are spiritually minded in the way we live our life. But I would also say this. There are a great many people that are spiritually minded, meaning they know the truth of the Word of God. They, they believe it. Uh, but they still somehow find their lives always short-circuited from following Jesus. I would say, number two, three, we could look at these men and say all three of them were sincere. So why do you believe that, preacher? Well, for one simple reason. I have no reason to believe they're not. I, I believe that the Lord Jesus probably would not have wasted his time engaging with these people in this conversation if they were just playing games. I believe if you could have looked into the hearts of these three men, you would have found that they were honest when they said... They wanted to follow Jesus Christ. Now, this is going to be a very, very elementary, fundamental statement, but I want you to listen to it. The first requirement of being a disciple is you've got to want to be a disciple. He's not going to shanghai anybody into his work. We have to be willing. We have to be wanting to serve the Lord. But I would say this, not even want to is enough. Because I think all three of these men wanted to serve Jesus Christ. I think they wanted to live their life in dedication to his service, and yet all three of them, to our understanding, walked away from this offer and never lived a life of discipleship, commitment to Jesus Christ. So why did that take place? And why in your life and mine can we be sincere, spiritually minded, scriptural individuals? We know the word of God. I think we live in a time today where there is probably more uh, scriptural teaching than there has ever been in all of human history. We, we are not, we talk about there being a famine for the word of God, but the truth is we have a bounty of the word of God. We have so much truth, so much uh, things that are taught to us today. We can be scriptural. We can be spiritually minded, value the things of God. We can be sincere and yet still we, like these men, could find ourselves walking away from this life of commitment 
and discipleship to Jesus Christ. What is it that caused this to happen? As I read this passage, I see basically three things. Notice them with me. The first is found in verses 57 and 58. Now, this is interesting because this is the first man that approaches Jesus. So there's three different situations here. One man approaches Jesus. Another man, Jesus approaches him. And then another man, Jesus approaches him and, and he, or he approaches Jesus, but he says, let me first go do this. So in other words, there's one man that comes and commits himself unconditionally to discipleship and then changes his mind. There's another man whom Jesus seeks out and says, I want you to be a disciple. And then he has some reasons he can't. And there's a third man that comes and says, I want to, but I want to, but. And of these three individuals, we have a picture of these things. Look at verse 57. It says, and it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now this has always been an interesting passage of Scripture to me, and I'll, be, I'll just be honest with you, mainly because I think many times I've gotten it wrong. In fact, I'm going to say many times I think most preachers have gotten this wrong. I'll tell you how most people read this passage. This man comes to Jesus and says, I'll go anywhere you want. And he says, all right. But that means we might not be able to sleep in, a, you know, Motel 6 sometimes. And he says, oh, that's too much for me. I'm sorry. I cannot do it. I, I, maybe, I guess, possibly. But can I give you what I think is a more rational uh, perspective on that passage? I think that this man has just committed himself to go anywhere that the Lord wants. And I think he probably already assumed that would mean nights of hardship and deprivation. And what the Lord Jesus replies to him is not merely to suggest, well, there's going to be some rough nights of sleeping out under the stars. But rather look carefully at what Jesus says. Jesus said unto him, foxes have holes. Now, a hole is not just a place where a fox sleeps. It's his home. It's a place of comfort. It's a place of security. It's a place of protection. We could use the term his home base. And birds of the air have nests. Likewise, a nest is not just a place where a bird sleeps, but it's also where they birth their young and, and hatch them and, and raise them. It's a, it's a place where they find protection from predators and various different things. Likewise, it is a home base. Now, then he says, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Now, can I ask you a, a very simple question? What does Jesus mean by that? Do you think there was ever a night when Jesus didn't go to sleep because there was literally not a square inch of earth for him to lay his head upon? I don't think that's true. I don't think the Lord Jesus is saying, we're going to struggle to find places to sleep sometimes. I think what he is saying is this. You understand that if you follow me, it means walking away from what we could call as a home base, a place of security and stability in life, and relinquishing control of your life and putting it in my hands. Can I tell you the first thing that I think keeps most people from serving the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not that they might be homeless but rather it's the idea of losing control. A lot of people won't serve Jesus because they can't handle the idea of not having a place of their own domain and a place under their own control. Think about this man's pledge. He says, I'll go anywhere. And Jesus' reply to him is, the thing that you're going to balk at is not what you're going into, it's what you're walking away from. It's not the potential for what could go wrong but rather it's that you're forfeiting your life to my control and you don't know where you're going to sleep at night. 
You don't know where this road's going to take you. You don't know what it's going to entail for you. See, the fact is, he was like many people. He was willing to go anywhere and do anything for God as long as he got to sign off on it first. I'll tell you, man, this is me. I don't know about you. I'm somebody that lives under the delusion of control. I like to believe that I've got control of things. I like to believe. I mean, I'm a planner. I plan everything to a fault. Uh, me and some of the folks have laughed about it when we've talked about vacations and road trips I've took, and, and, I've, and I have to work on it because I can plan so much that I become neurotic about my plan, and everybody has a bad time. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a planner. I like having a plan. I like knowing what's going to happen, but here's the stark reality of it. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to forfeit your autonomy to the Lord, and you have to say to yourself, there may be times that I don't know and I don't understand what's about to happen but I'm willing to trust him to lead wherever it may take me. The truth is, discipleship is just that, surrendering yourself to the master's will and saying what he wants out of my life is more important than what I want out of my life. And there may be times that I desire something and I want something, I long for something, but I don't get that thing because it's not within the will of God. And I have to be willing to accept that when that happens, it's not my lot to power through and push through and get my way anyway. Because that's not what a disciple would do. A disciple would look to the master and say, Lord, whatever you want for me, that's what I want for you. I would say, number one, losing control is a problem for most people. I would say, really, it's it's something that, that's innate in the human nature. It's intrinsic to it. And we all struggle with that idea. And let me just make a, a statement about that. I'm, I'm going to move on. The, the delusion, and I used that word carefully a moment ago, the delusion is that we have control in the first place. Can I let you in on a little secret the devil don't want you to know? Christ has already told you. He said, no man can serve two masters. He didn't say no man can serve no masters because it's a given that no man can serve no master. No man living in this world is really living unto himself. We think we have control. We think we've got things handled. Uh, but my soul, listen, and this is part of the reason as folks grow older in life, they learn this wisdom and age teaches this with experience because they've had the rug pulled out of them one too many times to believe that they're ever on sure footing. The greatest way that your life can be in control, and I want you to listen carefully, it's not a question of whether it's going to be under your control. You don't get to control your life. So now it becomes a matter of whose control do I want to be in? Who can exercise the most prudent control over my life? Well, then that becomes a very simple question, right? Who do you want to serve? Do you want to serve the flesh, the world, the devil? Or do you want to serve the Lord, a master that loves you, that cares about you, and that has proven through the cross of Calvary that he has only and singularly your best interests at heart in the way that he plots your life before you? So the question is this, not am I going to have control? And the question is not even really altogether is it going to be out of control? The question is, am I willing to trust the Lord with control over my life? Is he a trustworthy God? I found him to be so. I mean, let me just raise a hand in testimony tonight and say, I found him to be trustworthy. I, I, I found that he keeps his promises. I found that he knows better than I do. I found that he has greater things planned for me than I can plan for myself. I found when Paul said, I have not seen nor ear heard, uh, neither hath it entered into the hearts of men what God hath prepared for them that love him. I found that to be true. I found that the things that God has given me are things I would have never even dreamed up for myself. And I found that the more that I cede control of my life to Him, the more that I let Him be in control of my life, the better and better my life becomes. 
So I'd say the first problem is that of losing control. Then there's another fellow. Now this is interesting. Lord Jesus approaches him. He comes to this man. Or we could maybe say it this way. It appears as though the scene is a group of people gathered around. But the first man approaches Jesus. says, Lord, I'm here. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's do it. Then he finds out that he's not always going to be let in on all the plans. And he's not always going to know where that's going to lead him. And he balks at that. The second man does not speak to Jesus first. But Jesus, verse 59, he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord... Suffer me first to go and bury my father. Now, this isn't my message, but if you're in the habit of marking in your Bible, it wouldn't hurt you to underscore that phrase, me first. Because at the, really at the heart of it, when we talk about the things that derail discipleship, we could boil them down to one simple thing. It's a me first mentality. Not him first, but me first. But notice more carefully what he says. Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. This is probably one of the more misunderstood passages in the word of God. On on casual reading, I'm going to be honest with you, Christ seems cold, unfeeling, uncaring. He seems without sympathy or empathy for this man. But I think if we stop, put on our Sherlock Holmes hat, and just use a little deductive reasoning, I think we're going to see very, very clearly that things are not as they appear at first. I'll tell you how most people read this when they read it. Here's this poor old fella, and he just can't even bury his daddy. Daddy laying somewhere in the back room, getting cold, and he just he just comes broken hearted, weeping, and and Jesus points this man out and says, "Hey, why ain't you going to church today?" And the poor fellow says, "All oh, my heart's so broken. My daddy just died, and I've got to go bury him." And the Lord Jesus says, "Dry it up, son." That's what my dad always said to me. Dry it up, son. Don't you worry, but you let one of these godless people go bury your daddy. You get to the house of God, right? That's how we read it. But I don't think that's what's happening here. In fact, I would say this to you, that uh, if this man's father was dead, he probably would have never been here in the first place. See, there's one simple singular fact that changes the whole context of this. It's that this man's father wasn't dead in the first place. Uh, and this man was saying, it is my responsibility, my father. We And we don't know his father could have been aged and firm, but we have nothing that says that that's true. The only thing we can really discern about his father is that his father was not a believer because he uses the terminology dead. Let the dead bury their dead. But really, there's nothing we know. This man could have been 30 years away from death. He could have also been aged, infirm. This man may have felt some obligation to to tend to him in, in his infirmity. But it's reasonable to say this, that what this man is saying is not, give me a few days to bereave my father and to bury him. But rather what he is saying is, now's not a good time in life because I have other responsibilities that are more important. Can I tell you the second thing that derails discipleship in our life? The first is losing control, fear of losing control. The second is lesser commitments. Lesser commitments. The reality is this man was saying there are some things that are more important in my life right now than you are. And because of that, let me first go tend to those things and then I will come back and then I will be willing to follow you. We see the condition that he gives for his participation. Let me take care of all my other responsibilities and then when I'm done, I'll have time and I'll follow you. Can I tell you something? I I hope this is an ounce of prevention. Okay? Can I tell you something most people don't tragically learn until it's too late? Is that there's always going to be another responsibility. There is. There's always going to be another responsibility. 
I've been putting my little boy off for several days now. We borrowed a, a board game from uh, one of our friends, and, and, and I told him what feels like 70 years ago because the way he's pestered me about it, but it was really probably just a week ago or something. I said, now, son, we're going to play this board game together. And that's all it took, man. He is on board. He's excited. And every day since then has been, Dad, are we going to play it today? Wake up in the morning, my eyes pop open, and there he is, hovering over me like a specter. We're going to play it today, Dad? No, son, I'm sorry. I can't. I, I've got to work today. I've got things I've got to do. Okay. And then, you know, of course, we've been a little bit sick in the house, too. And, I mean, that, that even made it worse, because then I didn't even have the, the energy to be, you know, sympathetic with him. I just, get out of the room. I don't feel good, you know. And finally, the other night, we were coming home, and, and it was, I don't know, I mean, it was about 8 o'clock at night, you know. It's enough time for a board game, right? And, <laughs> and uh, I told I told my wife, I said, tonight's the night I'm going to play that game with him. I said, I don't care if the house is on fire. I'm playing that game with him. I put it off too long. I don't want to break his heart. About 1 a.m. we finished, all right? And by that time, like, Leah's still sick. I'm over it. I'm done. I'm doing everything I can to lose this board game as quick as possible. And Lawrence is just at that stage of, of you know, like euphoric fatigue where he's just giggling at everything. And uh, But, you know, here was the thing that I realized. There's always going to be something. Might as well go ahead and do it because there's always going to be something. Now, that's a silly illustration. But there is a truth in your life and mine. You see, when the Lord Jesus replies to him, notice, let's say it this way. We see the condition for his participation, but then we see the correction of his perspective. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. There are basically two truths that Christ replies with here. One, with, with jarring words, with, 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 uh, you know, surgical precision, he gets to the heart of the matter. And he reminds him that those responsibilities that he feels and weighs so heavily are of less significance than the spiritual responsibilities that he has. When he says, let the dead bury their dead, what he's saying is, one of these days we'll get daddy's going to die. And when that time comes, there'll be somebody who the most important thing in their life is temporal responsibilities, and they're going to bury him. But you have to make your mind up about what you want your life to be poured into, temporal responsibilities or eternal responsibilities. What he's saying is this, we could say very simply, some things matter more. You have to decide in your life that some things matter more. There will always, listen, there will always be more overtime to work. There will always be more houses, you know, projects around the house. There will always be more fun or activities to go participate in. There'll always be, and you can go down the line, man. You can talk about giving, how we give unto the Lord. There'll always be another bill. There'll always be another uh, another financial goal. There'll always be something. And that's the way the devil lures people into selling their life cheaply, is by keeping them distracted with consistent commitments that, by the way, are not valueless, but simply are lesser in nature. Very few people that are saved and love the Lord sell their life away on things that don't matter at all. They sell their life away on good things, but it's just not the best thing. He then reminds him that there is a pressing responsibility upon him. Go thou and preach the kingdom of God. He, he initiates this man into this calling. And he says, your life is not to be about those lesser things. There will always be people to tend to those lesser things. 
but your life is to be about a higher call. Now, I want to be very clear in what I say here. God is not calling us to a life of reckless abandon regarding responsibility. There are all kinds of things. Listen, I, it don't, God ain't pleased if you let the grass grow too high. God ain't pleased if you let the collection man come looking for his money. God ain't pleased if you let the gutters fall off the house around you. I'm not saying we need to abandon temporal responsibilities, but we certainly need to keep them in proper perspective. Uh, I remember once Dr. Seitler made the statement, duties never conflict. What he meant is things that really matter in life, God will give us the ability and the time to see to those important things. And when we find things squeezing God out of our life, that's the time to stop and say, what have I let into my life that is not essential? In other words, lesser commitments can often derail us. And then finally look at verse 61. I'll say a word about this and be done. Verse 61, we have sort of a hybrid of these two situations. The the first man comes to Jesus. Lord, I want to follow you. The second man did not come to Jesus. Jesus spoke to him, or we could say he was there with Jesus, but Jesus initiates and instigates the the interaction. But the third man's a little different. He speaks up, but he wants him to know real quickly that there are some things that have to be fulfilled first. Another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. You can hear almost the the convincing sound in his voice. I, I don't know that he was trying to convince the Lord. I think he was trying to convince himself. I will, Lord, I will follow thee, but let, we find that phrase again, me first, but let me first go, bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. Jesus said unto him, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This is an interesting exchange. First, I would say a word about the innocence of this man's request. I think part of the reason there's almost this halting way in which he approaches the Lord where where he's wanting. And we do this sometimes in conversation. You know, we'll say, well, well I'll do that, but, you know, or, or I'll go with you, but. And it's almost as though we're trying to interject before hopes are drawn too high this condition. It, it in other words, implies a certain insecurity in the way the man approached the Lord. And I think that's key when you understand what the Lord replies. But I think this man was sincere when he says this. I think that what he asked, to be frank, is perfectly innocent. I believe this man had every intention of going home and telling his family, I love you, but Christ has called me into this life, and it's going to mean I'm going to have to leave, and I'm going to have to go. I'm not going to see you as frequently. I think he meant every bit of that. But can I let you in on something? We can see it, but more importantly than that, the Lord saw something in this man's request that this man himself could not see. I, I, I hope that, let's hope we can all bear the truth that I'm about to say. Alright? Uh, the truth is, the Lord knows more what's needed in your life to make you a disciple than you do. There might be times He asks things of you. And I, things that you feel are a bridge too far. But you have to make up your mind that the Master knows better than you know about what it's gonna take to make you a disciple. I'm talking about things that we might not consider to be mandated by Scripture. Levels of commitment and conviction and and consecration that other people might even look at and call outlandish. But they don't know you like God knows you. Let me say, you don't know you like God knows you. In other words, being a disciple is not approaching the Lord in a negotiation. 
and saying, I'll give you this, but I won't give you that. Instead, it's laying yourself prostrate before him and saying, here I am. Tell me what you need of me. Anything lesser than that is not the relationship of Lord and disciple. So there is innocence in this man's request. I believe he had every intention of doing exactly what he said. But Jesus gives him a very, very firm reply. We could say it that way. Notice not only the innocence of this man's request, but notice the indication of it. Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, we we don't have time to unpack every bit of that. But I would just notice this. How would you reply or how would I reply? Put yourself in this man's shoes that's talking to Jesus. And he says, listen, Lord, I want to go with you. I want to follow you. Let me just go home and say bye to everyone first, and I will follow you. You notice that Jesus did not put this requirement on the other two men. He did not say, you can be my disciple, but only if you commit to not go home and say goodbye. But this man requests that. And the Lord says, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. How would you reply? How would I reply? I'll tell you how I would have replied. I would have said, Lord, that's not what I'm doing. I would have said, Lord, you don't understand. I'm I'm, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to sneak out the back door, right? I'm not trying to disciple and dash on you. I'm not, I'm not trying to just, just slip away under cover of darkness. Lord, I promise I really am coming back. But you and I understand that this is not just a prophet or a teacher or a preacher talking to him, this is God incarnate with infinite, perfect insight and knowledge. And the Lord was trying to reveal something to this man. He's not trying to scold him. He's trying to reveal something to him about what was in his own heart. The problem was not that this man wanted to go back and say goodbye to his family. The problem was, and he didn't even realize it, that he loved that family at home so much that if he did go back, he wouldn't return. We could say it this way. What are the things that keep us from being a disciple? Well, losing control or fear of losing control. Oftentimes we can't handle the idea of saying, Lord, my life is yours. Do with it as you please. Lesser commitments. There's always something to distract us from serving the Lord. But I would say number three is loving connections that we have in our lives. You see, when the Lord says what he says to him is fit for the kingdom of God, that's interesting language. Meaning, you're not cut out if you're not willing to cut everything out. He's not saying to him you're not sincere. He's not saying to him you don't want to. Imagine, listen to the illustration that the Lord gives. If you've ever done any kind of of tilling or plowing or anything like that, you know exactly how you're supposed to plow to keep a straight row. You pick something at the end of the row and you keep your focus on it and you don't take your eyes off of it. You don't look down at where you're plowing or you'll lose perspective. And you certainly don't look back. Because if you do, invariably, when you get your eyes on what you're leaving behind instead of what you're going towards, you're going to start to veer to the right hand or the left. If, you, if you've never done any gardening or farming or anything, you've probably mowed a yard and seen the exact same thing happen. It's impossible when you take your eyes off of where you're going to keep going in the right direction. See, here's the truth of the matter. There are things that we love too much in our life. It's not wrong that we love them. It was not a sin that this man loved his family. God commands us to love our family, right? Commands us to love our wife as Christ loved the church. Commands us to raise up our children, the nurture and admonition of the Lord, loving them. 
None of that is wrong. But the problem in this man's life was not that he loved the wrong things. It was that he loved in the wrong way. He loved them to such a degree and in such a way that it prevented him from being for the Lord what he was supposed to be. Boy, I I mean, I could give you example after example. And of course, for discretion's sake, I wouldn't. Of people that love their children right into hell. Too afraid to ever tell them no. Too afraid to ever to ever discipline them in their life. Too afraid to ever cut things out that were harming them, destroying them. I've seen husbands love their wives straight out of their marriage and vice versa because they were unwilling to take the appropriate roles and responsibilities that God had placed upon them. In other words, there is a thing we call love that is not the kind of love that God is and God does. And when we allow that infatuation and that obsession in our life to displace our devotion to Christ, then you mark her down pretty soon. The devil's going to ferret that out. He's going to make us choose, and we're going to choose wrong. The problem was not that this man loved his family. The problem wasn't even that he wanted to go home. The problem is the Lord knew something about him he didn't know about himself. And so if he had gone back, he would have never returned and gone through this life of discipleship. And you say, preacher, what do I do with that? Well, we be humble and meek enough to listen to what the Lord says we need in our lives. Because there might be things that he calls you to or asks of you that you say, Lord, that's unreasonable. Or you say, I know somebody else. They love the Lord. They're good Christians. They don't do this or they don't do that or they don't refrain from this. They don't refrain from that. But the master knows you and he knows what you're capable of. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. And very often those things in our life that we grow too attached to. It's not a problem that we're attached to them. It's not a problem that we love them. The problem is how we love them. And the degree to which we love We love them above Christ. And if we love anything above Christ, the devil will make sure there comes a place that we have to decide between them. And when we do, we'll decide incorrectly. We'll walk away from that line. I wonder which of these three things is a weakness for you or I. Undoubtedly, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we could point to things and say, that's my problem. I can't give up control of my life enough to let God have control of it. You might say, I always let something get in the way. I, I know the Holy Ghost stirs my heart, speaks to me in the Word of God. When I'm reading or when I'm listening to preaching, God deals with me. But then I get thinking about all those other responsibilities I have, and pretty soon I have penciled God out of my schedule. You say, preacher, there's just some things that I'm not willing to give up in order to be a disciple of Christ. And because I'm not willing to give them up, it'll never happen. Can I tell you, if you want to live a life of discipleship, you're going to have to be willing to give God control of your life, to make him the priority, and to make him preeminent above all other things. But if you do that, I don't think there would be a single disciple. Let me even go a step further. Christ spoke about men that would give up things that are that are precious to them for the cause of Christ. And God's not going to be a debtor to any man. He said every one of them would be repaid a hundredfold. Every one of them would be given over and above what they had ever given up. It is no life of a loser to live a life of discipleship. God will make sure of that. What's keeping us from following Christ? And are we willing to get our life submitted, surrendered unto him, and to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to give you the opportunity to meet with the Lord this evening in the altar. The altar is open. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. Connie's going to play when she's ready, but you can come meet the Lord down in the altar right now. What is it that God has dealt with you about in your life? What is that thing keeping you 
from serving the Lord? What is that thing that is preventing you from going all in for Him? Whatever it is, why don't you come find a place down here? Why don't you talk to the Lord about that? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name. Amen.